This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS News presents a special edition of America Changed Forever. Trigger pullers, guns on our streets with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to this special edition of America Changed Forever. Trigger pullers. Perhaps you are unfamiliar with the term trigger puller. After covering law enforcement for the past 30 years of my career, it is a term that I've heard repeatedly from law enforcement. Here's a fact. Trigger pullers are people who have committed violent crimes in the past and who police view is likely to continue to commit violent crimes. That's a brief explainer because we're going to go more in depth ahead, not only hearing from me, obviously, in my experience, but also from former police chiefs and the current police commissioner in Buffalo, New York, because that term trigger pullers explains part of what's happening in some cities across America where homicides have risen by an average of 37%. And yes, the term trigger pullers is very uh, appropriate. We have a small number of people that are committing the vast numbers of violent crimes and the shootings, you know, I, I think you're going to see that the, we have the same, you know, number of people committing the most shootings. More than likely, you've heard about what happened in Sacramento last weekend. Now, a lot of people have seen the video, seen the social media videos, and we've heard that there were over 100 bullet casings. When you listen to that and you see the, the melee and the chaos of people running out of there and the number of shots fired, you had to think, how is this happening? What kind of gun is this? Police now believe that shooting that left six dead was fueled by gang violence. But similar shootings have happened in other cities this year. I recently visited Buffalo, New York, where the FBI and local police are working together on solutions to get suspects tied to gun violence and drugs off the streets. Take firearms narcotics search warrant. Anybody have any questions? Shortly before 6 a.m., SWAT teams in Buffalo are prepping to serve search warrants. What could go wrong? I mean, worst case scenario, someone could lose their life. Part of a new federal and local strategy against violent crime and murder. Lead FBI agent Steve Bologna says during the pandemic, homicides surged. Crime spiking and there's blood in the streets. You have to do something now. The tactical units just breached this home right here. They're looking for a suspect in connection with a drug case. Here in Buffalo, the FBI and local police changed their strategy, focusing on cases that can be solved quickly, sharing intelligence, and using federal charges against some suspects to keep them off the streets and in jail. 
So he had a fentanyl shotgun. Fentanyl shotgun so far? Yeah, so far. We have an ability to hold people. Um, we have an ability to, to protect our sources. The FBI's top criminal agent, Luis Casada, says the changes have paid off in recent months. Is it working? Yes. There was a reduction in impact of a 50% reduction of homicides. Erie County Sheriff John Garcia says a surge in violent crime started after George Floyd's murder, anti-police demonstrations, and COVID. Officers took a step back. Law enforcement has slowed down in terms of catching up to criminals? I believe so. You think so? Yes, absolutely. We have to unleash our, our police again. This is what unleashing the police looks like. Inside a townhouse, a stash of drugs, money, and a weapon. And the dope was in the kids' room. Wait a second. So the dope was hidden in a child's room? Yes, sir. Later that day, the police are back hitting the streets. This time to explain themselves. Buffalo Police Commissioner Joe Grimalia. They're going to walk the areas where our SWAT teams were out and engage with the community and let them know why we're here. Power, persuasion, and a drop in murders. What could be a new way to tackle high crime. Steve Bologna is the FBI's top agent in Buffalo. Here's more of my interview with him. This surge of, of criminal violence throughout the nation it could be attributed to many things. It's difficult to speculate. You can... People talked about the pandemic, uh, early release of uh, violent offenders, lack of staffing in the police departments, a whole slew. But I think it's a combined effort, uh, combined issues that have caused this rise in crime. How do you, how do you turn the tide? Well, the FBI, uh, violent crime and the mitigation of that is one of our top priorities. What we try to do is really leverage our working with our, with our counterparts with our local police departments, both state and, and city. We've developed uh, task forces that really are force multipliers for us. And if you're not familiar with the task force, basically it'll be an FBI-led task force. We have approximately 350-plus task forces throughout the nation that focus on these type of crimes. They'll be made up of FBI agents and members of other law enforcement agencies to include locals, like with other federal agencies. And what we do there is bring in expertise from other agencies, their skills, their techniques, and their authorities. And we combine them with ours to mitigate that threat. I can tell you last year, I think we made uh, over 17,000 arrests. These uh, task forces recovered over 8,000 weapons last year. Buffalo is one of those cities that experienced an increase of violent crime, specifically homicides. One of the tools that we have in our toolbox that we've developed here at the Criminal Investigative Division at the Bureau is the rapid deployment teams. It's just one tool of all our tools. Basically, what we do is we'll surge resources customized to the specific office and the needs of that, of that community to uh, help mitigate the issues that they're experiencing. It's a surge. It's a temporary fix or a temporary Band-Aid until we can just establish our strategic um, enterprise uh, theory of investigation and just move forward investigations against these criminal uh, organizations. Mm, so what is it in, in Buffalo specifically that has been driving the crime? Are there repeat offenders, trigger pullers? Is it gang uh, violence? What is it? From 
What I'm aware of right now that I can tell you is that a, a large increase in homicides that have occurred. I don't know really the reason why. I, couldn't, I don't want to speculate on that. I think the SEC in Buffalo can answer that better than I can. But uh, we've definitely sent our resources out there, and it's had a very positive impact in the community. There was a 50% reduction in homicides after this emphasis in Buffalo was, uh, was commenced. There was that reduction of homicides. I can't tell you the exact dates offhand. What do you think is really making the difference? I think the collaboration between the, uh, all the authorities there, the federal government, the local government, working together and really making this a priority. What can, what can the feds do that the locals can't? We bring uh, to the table some other resources, interstate jurisdictions, federal uh, jurisdictions in, in many of these crimes. Uh, when these uh, subjects are arrested on federal violations, use, usually the, the penalties are much stiffer. Uh, could, it, could it be a blueprint to fighting crime in other cities? I think it's a, a good uh, model. Will it work in every city? I'm not sure every city is different size, uh, capacities of the local departments and the issues they have. But it's definitely, it exemplifies the collaboration and working together to really uh, fight this, uh, this uh, crisis that we're experiencing. I think one of the most important things uh, to combat this violent crime is not only the law enforcement aspect that we are part of, but really a whole of community involvement. Uh, we need the community. We need their assistance. A lot of the field offices are, are involved in community outreach, whether it be Citizens Academy, interfaith groups, uh, working with youths at a basketball camp or what have you. I think developing trust with the community is critical because a lot of times crimes occur, people know things, and they don't come to us. So what we're trying to do in the FBI is really establish that trust, open those lines of communication so we can help each other because we need the assistance of the community. We're sworn to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution, and part of that is, yes, address violent crime. This is a special edition of this program as we focus on crime across America. We've been discussing what's behind the violence, so let's continue the discussion. Joseph Grimalia is Buffalo's police commissioner. Commissioner, thanks for being with us. So I wanted our listeners to hear from a major city police commissioner about what is going on in his city as it relates to crime. I did spend some time, as you know, commissioner in Buffalo, and we talked while I was in the city. Um, but what, what you're experiencing there in, in terms of crime is, is probably not unlike a lot of cities across the country. Would you agree with that? I would. Uh, when you look at 2020 and 2021, we absolutely saw a significant rise in gun crimes and shootings. What what would you attribute to that rise in, in crime and shootings? Um, you know, that's a complex question that's been uh, answered uh, in many different ways, but um, I think there's a lot of correctness in, in a lot of those answers. But um, you look at, for us, our rise in shootings started June 1st of 2020. Um, we saw an increase in our shootings in the first half of 2020. So let me backtrack a little bit. 
Uh, we implemented uh, some strategies, uh, very heavy on community-based strategies, as well as enforcement actions on uh, very specific individuals. And in 2019, with uh, the work that we were doing, we saw what probably the single largest year decline in our shootings. We had about a 24% uh, decrease in our shootings from the year before, and we were significantly below our 10-year average. Um, you know, boy, we really thought we were onto something. And then 2020 hit. And, you know, for, for New York State, we had to contend with bail reform, which began January 1st of 2020. Um, that, that has made our jobs uh, increasingly difficult. Um, and then uh, we had seen uh, our, our shootings beginning to, to rise at that point. We also started to see those that are arrested with um, handguns that were illegally in possession of handguns. Uh, they were also getting out on bail that was uh, either, in my opinion, far too low or no bail at all. Some were released under the supervision of the probation department, which means they walked out of jail on a signature bond. Um, because of bail reform changes, there was a third form of bail that had to be um, added at their arraignment. Um, June 1st, 2020, which is right when the protests began, we saw an absolute significant increase just skyrocketed in our shootings. We ended the year about 100% up from from the prior year. You saw how much of an increase in, in June 2020? So from the second half of 2020, we were at times about 100% above from 2019 in the same. When you compare the second halves of 2019 to 2020, we were at times about 100% higher in our shootings than we were in 2019. And, um, you know, when, when you... When you get into COVID, you get into the lockdowns, you get into the courts being shut down, which means none of those gun cases or shooting cases uh, could be presented to a grand jury. Everything was locked down. Jails were being emptied out because of COVID concerns. And then also, um, you know, because of some of the um, changes with how parole has to operate in the Department of Corrections, you saw a lot of people that were getting out that normally would not have uh, been able to come out. Um, and then you had the protest activity that had to be dealt with, which drew a lot of our resources into dealing with protest. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, a large combination of things that, that really was a, a drain on our resources and, um, you know, a lack of, um, I don't want to say a lack of prosecution because we have a, we have a, a very solid partner in our district attorney, unlike some other locations around the country, but, um, you know, people that were being let out that shouldn't have. The way you outlined what happened during that summer of 2020, that was social justice summer, and not that that has anything to do with the protest, but what you had is the pandemic affecting the criminal justice system. Um, and you talk about how crime went up noticeably. It was pretty obvious what was happening at that time. And as I started this interview, I was talking about how other cities across the country experienced the same thing and in a lot of ways are still feeling the effects of what happened, happened during that period. Do you think Buffalo right now is still in some ways feeling the impact of what happened at the start of the pandemic? Yes and no. So um, 
the rise in crime was the rise in gun crime, was the rise in shootings. Uh, our property crimes in the first three to four months of 2020 absolutely started to skyrocket. Um, and that was because of bail reform. When you have people that are committing burglaries and getting arrested for them in multiple burglaries and then being released because judges no longer had the discretion to set bail, that, that's a problem. But we then saw a, a significant uh, decrease in those property crimes because where was everybody starting the middle of March of 2020? They went home. It makes it a little more difficult to burglarize your home when you're home. Our larcenies plummeted. You know, we, uh, like a lot of other cities, have an issue with people breaking into people's cars. Well, when you have, a, you know, the workforce that comes into downtown Buffalo, no longer is coming into downtown Buffalo, you know, that kind of took that away. And you, like you said, you had lockdowns. So our property crimes actually really um, uh, dropped uh, and all those uh, increases were wiped out, which was, you know, great. But our gun crimes is really what took off. So what we're seeing now and then I'll tell you, the first half of 2021 continued on at just a, a, a ridiculous pace in shootings and gun crimes. Um, we uh, we had a, a bad Fourth of July weekend of 2021, and uh, we immediately, within the days after the Fourth of July, um, held I'd call it an emergency meeting in headquarters um, at about. I don't know, 930 at night, um, I started sending text messages out to our commanders, our partners in the state, uh, county, federal um, levels. And we had about 35 people in the room uh, at the end of that first week of July. And, you know, I talked to my intelligence lieutenant and we put together and, and he really, uh, you know, launched off with it, but gave him a set of, uh, you know, strategic uh, things that I wanted accomplished. And, and we really launched off into a, a program where the, the U.S. Attorney's Office launched an aggressive um, prosecution um, of very specific identified offenders, basically those that fit the criteria, having uh, previous uh, convict felony convictions who are arrested with a gun. Um, you know, we were targeting very specific people and where those individuals, as we were seeing, were getting released on bail the U.S. attorney's approach at the time uh, was to have uh, charges immediately placed and they were calling them immediate adoptions. And then uh, they were scooping them out of court as they were being released or if they were being held, they were still adding the charges and putting detainers in case they were released. Or in some other instances, after they were released, we went back, picked them back up again and they were being detained federally. And uh, we started to see uh, you know, a combination of our our micro hotspot policing strategies um, using you know, significant data and this immediate adoption program that was in cooperation with our local DA, as, as obviously as well as the U.S. attorney, we uh, started to see significant reductions, which is kind of what you know, the news story you did the other day was based on. Uh, you know, we saw a 50% decrease in our homicides in the second half of the year, and our shootings really started to plummet. We wound up about flat. Uh, with the same number of people shot as 2020. But if you look at the, you know, if you break things down and you really look at the data, the first half of the year was just so far off pace. And then with the second half of the year, we really made significant uh, gains in that second half employing the strategies that we employed. There is a, a ton of debate about what is fueling this rise 
in gun crime. What do you think of is behind it? Are these the people who are doing these shootings? Are they purchasing their guns legally? Are they getting them illegally? Uh, is there, are these, I know some uh, police officers use the, the term trigger pullers. Are there people in the community who are behind a disproportionate amount of crime, of shootings? Does the data show you who you're looking for? Um, you know, a bunch of questions in there. But but what is fueling this this spike in, in gun violence? So first and foremost, uh, I'll hit on ghost guns. So uh, last year, we had, oh, and I forget the numbers, we were probably about 35% uh, to 40%, forgive me, I I'm, I'm get a lot of numbers bouncing around in my head, um, higher in gun recoveries, gun seizures than we had in 2020. So we, we had a pretty good number of guns that we took in. And the real difference uh, between the two years' numbers was the dramatic rise in ghost guns. Um, in 2019, we took in nine ghost guns for the entire year. In 2020, we recovered five ghost guns. And in 2021, we recovered 70 ghost guns. So we went from five to 70, and that number is continuing to launch off. So when you look at the, the, uh, the amount of guns that are on the street, that's, that's a significant problem. So where people used to have to you know, drive down what was dubbed the Iron Pipeline and drive to some of these other states and purchase guns through straw buyers and, and other, uh, other means because of other states' laxed gun laws, they would drive them back um, and then they would sell them on the street for a, a significant profit. Uh, there's obviously a, a, you know, a certain amount of um, uh, liability for the person that's doing this in, in driving those guns back, they're crossing multiple state lines. They they risk getting pulled over. They risk a secondary search. They risk you know getting arrested, transporting guns over state lines. They don't have to do that anymore. Anybody can go online, can order the lower part of the gun. Then they can go online and they can order a legit uh, uh, slide and barrel that is has a serial number on it, but because it's not considered a firearm. You don't have to go through background checks. You don't have to go through a federal firearm license dealer. Anybody can order this barrel and this slide. Uh, and then all they do is they make the minor modification that doesn't take very long on the lower part they receive. And uh, they, they've got an operational gun and they're selling them for, you know, $1,500, $2,000 on the street. And the best part of the whole thing is they're doing it legally. And the, the best way that this was uh, put to me is when you get the ingredients to make a cake, the ingredients are not illegal. But once that cake comes out of the oven and it's baked, now you have an illegal, illegally possessed firearm and uh, nobody has to drive anymore. And that's the significant problem that we're seeing. So um, that's part one of your question. And yes, the term trigger pullers is very uh, appropriate. We have uh, you know, a, a small number of people that are committing the vast numbers of violent crimes in the shootings. You know, there's there's only certain people in the community that are, are actually going to go through with pulling a trigger and actually shooting somebody. It's, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to see that the, we have the same, you know, number of people committing the most shootings. 
Um, but you are also seeing a lot more people that are carrying guns. And you've got a couple different kinds of people doing that. You've got, as we just talked about, the trigger pullers. You've got other people in the gang that are carrying guns, you know, for protection uh, because, you know, they're out on the corners, they're out at their houses, you know, they're wherever they are. And, and um, you know, they're, they're, they want to protect themselves. They're not necessarily looking to go and, and um, you know, go on the offensive, but they certainly will defend themselves. But then you have this, this other uh, type of gun carrier. And you've got the kid, and I say kid because it really affects our youth, but you've got the kid who, um, you know, isn't necessarily in the life, but he doesn't want to die. And he just wants to go on about his life. And as the old adage is, better to be judged uh, by 12 than carried by six. Um, I think that's what we have. And, you know, I feel bad for for these young men. And again, I'm going to say young men because it's you know almost always men that are, are uh, young boys even that are carrying the guns. And, you know, I try to put myself in their, uh, in their mindset as to what has gotten them to the point that they want to carry a gun and it's to protect themselves. So when you, uh, when our officers grab this kid up, you know, I, I certainly want to see, you know, uh, a wholesome approach in the courts at looking at this young man. Do I think that their lives should be ruined with a felony conviction? Of course not. I think we have to look at these these gun defendants a lot deeper. Do we have the ability to rehabilitate that young man? Do we have that ability to get that young man, you know, back in school, back on track, um, and then become a productive member of society and then work their way off of that felony? Absolutely, I do, because now you're just perpetuating the cycle if you don't. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I have a, a heavy-handed philosophy on those that are the trigger pullers and the gang members that are driving the violence, and I say heavy-handed through the court system. We absolutely need to have significant prosecutions and let them earn their way back while they're spending their time in jail. Get them services, get them job training, get them education, and hopefully they'll come out and and have a better outcome when they come out. What is your stance on what the state of New York settled on this legislative session? In terms of bail reform, New York State uh, is allowing judges to set bail for a greater number of offenses and make it easier to hold repeat offenders pending trial as part of this larger state budget agreement uh, that is expected to be passed. What is your response to to what has come out of this legislative session? So, you know, unless I'm missing something in the news, I haven't seen anything uh, throughout the day. My my schedule hasn't allowed me to to watch uh, today's news. But, um, you know, from what I understand, and, and I've been as involved as I can be through the New York State Chiefs of Police Association and through, you know, the, the city of Buffalo here and with my mayor uh, communicating with uh, with the, le- the legislative body on providing data to uh, to have bail reform reformed. Uh, but, you know, my stance is that uh, the judges need to have more discretion, but then the judges need to use that discretion and they need to start holding individuals accountable. But, you know, we elect judges um, because of their qualifications and, and, and because of their knowledge of the law. We need to allow them to have the discretion to look at cases on a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, having we're the last state in the nation that does not take into account the dangerousness of the offender, both, uh, uh, you know, in their background and to the community. And, and that's a real problem. Just to give our listeners a little bit more background on your a career as a police officer you're you're from the city of buffalo 
You've been in the department for 25 years. You were just uh, appointed commissioner last month. So you have experience on the streets. You've seen how the crime has evolved over the years. Um, what in this first month on the job has been the most challenging thing for you to deal with? Um, it's, uh, it's been a, uh, you know, trying times in the first uh, four or five weeks of my tenure here. Um, the day I was sworn in, we had the morning before I was sworn in officially from interim to become the permanent commissioner. Uh, we had an officer-involved shooting, involved a uh, person suffering uh, from a, a, a mental health episode. Um, so, you know, we had to work our way through that officer-involved shooting. Um, you know, fortunately, that individual survived. Um, you know, we we released the body camera video footage uh, rather quickly um, so that uh, in an effort of transparency, the community can see what our officers were, uh, were dealing with in that situation. Um, you know, our officers did not respond to a mental health call. They responded to a threats call and, and it rapidly escalated. So, um, you know, had to deal with that situation. Um, and then, um, last week, so about three weeks after this officer involved shooting, um, we had a, uh, three, three police officers shot, um, in a, uh, situation where they were trying to stop a car and, and the individual was firing rounds. He had a um, he had a handgun. He was uh, not authorized to possess that handgun with an overextended magazine, um, you know, that would allow him to carry a significant amount of rounds uh, in that magazine. And uh, he proceeded to uh, start shooting at our police cars, um, you know. And ultimately, we had three police officers that suffered gunshot wounds. Fortunately, they're all going to survive. Uh, the individual was shot multiple times. Uh, fortunately, he's going to survive. Um, but he was also another individual who already has a felony conviction for a firearm. And when he was arrested for that firearm, um, he was illegally in possession of it and it had a 31 round magazine on it. He had a, a, another magazine that had 15 rounds. And, um, you know, I think part of the issues is, is you know, he was he was given a plea deal which uh, afforded him a one-step reduction. Uh, still took a violent felony conviction and he got probation. And, and I have, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge the, the plea that was offered. Uh, from what I understand, it was his first arrest. Um, but, you know, I think part of the problem that, that the criminal justice system has been going through is the increasing difficulty for our probation department and our parole officers to do their jobs. The ability to hold people accountable while they're on probation or parole has been significantly reduced in an effort to keep people out of jail. You know, and I don't believe that someone should be sent back to prison um, because of some minor violations. But, you know, you got that building block theory. And if there are you know, enough of those minor violations, they cannot be ignored. I don't know if this individual had any violations or not, but I will say that he obviously felt uh, you know, confident and secure enough that he couldn't be stopped to the point that uh, he had been carrying a gun for at least several months, if not longer. We have information that he had been in possession of that gun for at least six weeks and if not longer. We found out after the fact, of course. When we visited Buffalo, we followed the FBI, Buffalo police, as well as Erie County, uh, sheriffs, uh, SWAT team, 
And part of what was happening was carrying out these search warrants, trying to take suspects wanted for violent acts off the streets as quickly as possible, solve some of these cases. Given what happened post-George Floyd, and if you take out the discussion about defund the police, what demonstrators were looking for is law enforcement to treat people fairly, people of color specifically fairly. Is there a danger in this era of surging crime numbers? Is there a danger of going back to zero tolerance policies because people want to see the numbers go down where people of color are being treated differently? Do you think about that? Of course I do. Um, you know, n- nobody wants to go backwards. You know, we were, uh, you know, I think uh, we're a profession that is constantly evolving, just like the private sector, um, you know, stagnant waters go bad. Um, but I, I think you can't throw the, uh, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. I think uh, there were some things that were working that were unfairly um, scrutinized when it comes to uh, the social justice reform of criminal justice. There absolutely were things that needed to change. We listened here. We made some changes, um, you know, but there's some things that, that you know, that absolutely worked. Um, you know, what what we saw locally and, and, you know, I'd have to venture to guess that some of the other cities around the country saw the same thing is um, in a lot of our protests, what I did not see were residents of areas that are most plagued by violence in the city of Buffalo who were out there on the protest line. They were not. The residents that are living in fear where there is high propensity for gun violence want not only more police, but a stronger police department um, with the ability to do their jobs. These are the people that are living um, every night they go to bed and, and, and have to be very uh, mindful of where they are, what they're doing, when they let their kids out to play because of the actions of a few. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, it'd be one thing if you saw a significant uprising from residents and, and the vast majority of very good residents living in bad situations that were out there protesting the kind of policing that, that at least we locally were doing. And that was not the case. So I don't know that, you, you know, that you, you completely go back because we made some changes ourselves. Um, and I'm very happy with uh, some of the changes that we made. I think some have worked out very well and have made us better at our jobs. Um, but there are, you know, I, I kind of have this, uh, I guess we'll call it a theory, if you will, of, of you know, a philosophy, not a theory of philosophy of, of uh, policing. And it's, you, it's a, you know, you stand on, your foundation is based on two legs. You have to have a very strong community support system, um, you know, bridge building with your community. We're all in this together. We have to be out there networking with our community, but you also have to have a strong uh, enforcement side of things for those that want nothing to do with the uh, outstretched hand that we give them. And if you take one of those legs out, you're, you're in trouble. If all you do is, is go out there and, and, you know, do community events and, you know, you, you network, but you're not arresting anybody, not holding anybody accountable, none of that's going to matter because the people that you're targeting are not coming to these events. And if all you're doing is the enforcement side of things and you're not, 
you know, going out and sharing the experiences, you're going to lose the trust of, of the people that want you and need you the most. And one of the things that we have recently employed, which you saw in your story, is uh, when our SWAT team goes out to, to, to do a raid, um, you know, typically that same day, and if not within the same day, uh, we are sending our neighborhood engagement team officers, they're kind of our, our community police officers on steroids, if you will, and we're sending them out into the immediate neighborhood where the raid took place, knocking on doors and networking with individuals to say, hey, we had a police action in your neighborhood this morning, this afternoon. Uh, you know, we're here to answer any questions to the best that we can and uh, kind of talk through some things. And that's like the procedural justice side of things that we're, we're focusing on. And I think we have some pretty uh, forward ideas on how we're going to expand on that. We're looking at, you know, specific uh, door knockers for people that weren't home. And we're even looking at incorporating a survey, a, a, um, an online survey for someone who wasn't home or even someone that was home that can comment about, you know, how we're doing. And so we're, we're in the process of drafting, uh, really expanding on that uh, procedural justice side of things. Ronald Serpus, who is a professor of practice, criminology and justice at Loyola University, New Orleans. But he was police superintendent in New Orleans, police chief in Nashville, and chief of the Washington State Patrol. Ronald, thanks for being with us. It's very good to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. All right. So uh, across America, on local news, people are seeing that crime is up. Homicides are up. What do you think is going on in these cities across America? I think the first thing, Jeff, is that crime data, in my experience, trails citizen perception. So the way I think we should always look at it is if the crime data is showing us an increase, citizens have been feeling it longer and more and more intimately. You know, we, we know that we know the gaps that we have between police reporting and citizens reporting. Secondly, there's something real going on. I mean, a city like New Orleans with a 300% increase in carjackings compared to 2019. Uh, just yesterday, the mayor of D.C. announced that she wants to hire 347 more officers. Um, something's going on. It's tangible and real in many cities. I don't know that it really is the whole country. But I, I think, Jeff, the real question is, is we don't want to repeat the same thinking that more crime must equal more police. I think many cities know when there's too few police. And that's that's the difference we're going to have. I don't think we should just not miss the opportunity to take a deep dive on what's happening in so many of these cities with very similar crimes, not unlike what we saw in Sacramento, very sadly. Well, let, let's talk about Sacramento, for example. In that case, it looks like one of the suspects charged by police had a firearm and one of the charges was that he was in illegal possession of a firearm, which tells me that this is somebody with a, a felony, a felony in his background, uh, someone perhaps known to police. You know, the, these crimes that we're seeing, uh, any idea what percentage? And if you don't have that number, I, I understand, but you know what the trends are. You know, police know who these trigger pullers are. Often they know. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Yes, I, I think it would be because, you know, Jeff, people who are willing to use a dangerous weapon to kill and harm other people is a pretty small number who do it more than once, who do it as a routine form of life. 
what I've been reading in the in the in the news reports is that both of these young men have a conviction felony that prohibits them by law of possessing a firearm. So the fact that they had the firearm is the beginning of a problem. And people who have had those kinds of convictions, they're enumerated laws, Jeff. It's not just a felony. It's got to be a specific kind of felony, which obviously is associated with danger and violence. How do they get a gun, right? They're not going to buy these at pawn shops. And it's kind of not the point. I mean, people who get guns for those kinds of illegal purposes are and the government's own research, which suggests they're not buying that in any kind of a normal way. So the fact that we see the continued use of the ultimate acts of serious violence and dangerous and crowded rooms of people or crowded streets tells us there's a recklessness, I think, among those who are choosing to shoot this way. You know, Jeff, you and I, you may know this, but I've been doing this for 40 years. And when I was a young man, you didn't have shootings at police scenes where you had 10, 15, 20 bullets. You might have five. Now, 100, 200. It speaks to a change in the use of deadly weapons. And what we're hearing from law enforcement is that, you know, people are getting their hands on guns and turning them from semi-automatic to fully automatic, turning them into machine guns. Exactly. And and the, the, the ability to do that is a question that maybe we can engineer and solve one day. The willingness of people to do it who are using it to advance these incredible acts of public violence is a slightly different question. And I don't think there's much energy should be wasted on determining whether or not the uh, recreational gun user who can change a gun to automatic. The question is, should we even be allowing that through the engineering of the weapons? Well, I was going to ask you, there are a lot of people across the country who will talk about crime rising in neighborhoods and gun violence, and they're going to say, well, this is about the availability of guns. How do you respond to that? I think the way many police chiefs do, which is that you know, the, the issue of constitutionality of the Second Amendment or the question of gun control is really not the issue that police confront. The issue that police confront is the illegal use of a dangerous weapon. And it's the illegal use of it that the police have a responsibility and an area of, uh, I would hope, expertise in trying to interdict and identify and to bring forward for prosecution. So police chiefs generally are not going to get drawn into whether or not it's a Second Amendment issue or Democrat or Republican issue because they're dealing with people who've been shot. They're dealing with people who illegally do not have a right to own or possess a weapon who are shooting other people far too many times. And thirdly, they're dealing with people who have such little disregard for anyone around them that they're illegally using a weapon in a crowded space. You see it in Chicago every weekend. We see it in New Orleans on Bourbon Street. We see it in Sacramento, where there's no, there's no regard whatsoever for anyone else around them except the fact that they intend to shoot as many bullets as they can as quickly as they can. Yeah, I mean, you talked about how things change over the years, how things have evolved. So how does law enforcement respond to these surges in crime without going back to what worked in the 80s and the 90s, zero tolerance policies? That's that's the question of the day, Jeff. The techniques that the police can use to identify hotspots has been well-researched. To deal with the question of whether it's people who are experiencing problems with crime control of themselves or is it places where crime is endemic to an environment, there are a lot of tried and true practices that are constitutionally sound. The ultimate purpose of those practices is to develop community support 
because without community support, you can't make arrests. You can't have witnesses testify in court to hold people accountable. Ultimately, Jeff, the question is, how can the police use constitutionally sound, proactive policing measures, not simply responding to the calls, to earn community support so that communities will feel comfortable in participating in investigations and prosecutions? I went up to Baltimore, as our listeners can attest. They heard my reporting. Uh, actually, let me let me just correct that. I went up to Buffalo, um, where I spent some time with Buffalo Police and the FBI. They're working together, and they what they are telling us is working up there is local police, federal police working and focusing on crimes immediately in the short term, not looking out on on cases that they can work over a several month period. They're trying to see results now. Uh, and so they've increased intelligence. They're also trying to slap some of these suspects with federal uh, charges in addition to state charges, because what they found is that these people who are committing crimes are getting locked up for a matter of hours and they're right back out on the streets. That's not something that's unique to upstate New York, is it? I mean, we're seeing that in other jurisdictions as well. It's not unique to upstate New York and it's not unique to this era. When I was a police chief in New Orleans, always one of the top five cities in the murder capital calculation, which is so devastating to the to the to the uh, psychological well-being of a community, we were always under pressure to solve the immediate problem, and that's one of the reasons that some of the models of policing called pulling levers or David Kennedy ceasefire, in my opinion, it was that we would try to solve the immediate problem of shooting and shooters, the economic, social, educational. Uh, fairness and equity issues that attach to the criminal justice environment are crucially important. But when you're a police chief of a city that people are being killed at a rate that no one has experienced in a decade, they're not waiting for the long-term solution. So these partnerships with federal, state, and local authorities to identify the shooters, right? Let's just be honest. Identify the convicted felons who are possessing firearms with the intent of killing or arming others. That is a much smaller population of your community. You can focus resource on that. You can focus attention on that. And that's what the community wants. I think every community I've been around as a consultant or a professor or as a police chief wants the long-term solution, Jeff. They really do want to see fairness and equity and balance. But when people are being shot and killed or like here in New Orleans two weeks ago, a senior citizen was dragged in a carjacking until her arm was forcibly removed from her body and she expired on the street. People have a very low tolerance for political bromides. They have a very low tolerance for academic concepts. They want something done now. Mm, and do you do you see police departments doing enough now, or do they not have the resources to do it now? You talked about Washington, D.C., where the mayor wants to hire more police officers. Do they even have the resources to, to do this right now? I think the question you ask is the one that's the most important, and that is, even if you could hire 347 people, do you have the resources to sustain it? And here's the question that's got to be asked, and it hasn't been asked, asked since President Johnson was president. What is the duty of American policing? What is the expectation 
of American policing. Here today in America, on any given major city, you can see the calls for service data. About half of the calls have nothing to do with a police component. Less than 10% have anything to do with a major crime. Four or 5% have anything to do with a violent crime. So we as a nation need to kind of ask ourselves the question, do we want the police with the limited resource they have and the changing recruitment and retention issues that many industries face, do we want the police to continue to respond to the barking dog? Do we want the police to continue to respond to a traffic accident that has no injury and no criminal component? Do we want the police to continue to be the designated first responder of government to mental illness? Because that's who designated the police, Jeff, the local and state government. So if that reconciliation was to be had, you would see a reduction of the criminal justice footprint in people's lives, which is what many want. You would see a more likely focus of what resource you really do have on those crimes of violence and activities that disrupt people's safety and, and economies and education of safety so you can go to school, so you can open a business. So we need, a, we, need a, we need an inflection moment on what it is we're asking the police to do. And that could be the, play, that could be the way to free resource without having to hire 300 people to actually get them on the focus point of dealing with violent criminals. Well, I thought that after George Floyd's death, after the defund the police conversations, uh, after that summer of unrest, that there would be changes in law enforcement where, and frankly, in communities where we knew exactly what police were supposed to be doing. Wasn't there that reckoning? There was going to be that reckoning, I suspect, but I'm, I'm afraid it must have gotten off a track, not because people don't want a just policing system. Secondly, we've got to remember the criminal justice system is built to protect a defendant's rights found in the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendment. That's, that's, that's the issue. And I think thirdly, this crime wave has reached a point where people are now looking at today's problem and thinking about the longer problem. But as I said a few minutes ago, they want an immediate problem solved. And, and, and that's where the conflict comes. And that's where leadership is going to have to play a role. Reforming police and reforming criminal justice and reducing crime are not three mutually exclusive choices. We really should and can do all three at the same time. Mm, but, and you talked about this carjacking. Um, there, you know, frankly, I've been working on stories about carjackings because if you just look at what is happening with these things, it's like every minute of the day there is another carjacking. And in a lot of these cases, what links them is that these are kids doing this across the country. Absolutely. And what I think is the most frightening piece of it is twofold. One, carjacking has in some connotation that they just took your car. That's not the case. A carjacking, at least in the states I'm familiar with the laws, it is a dangerous use of an instrument on you personally and taking your car from you. It's a robbery. So I think one is that uh, maybe we just got to continue to understand how dangerous this crime is. Secondly, there's been a tremendous amount of research done on adolescent brain development and the power of dopamine to provide such a great feeling to people and we see that in children. We see that in young people. And a lot of that research is what caused the Supreme Court to change the, the law that you cannot use uh, execution in young people. But maybe there's something to that going on that we need to have some of our more, you know, uh, Professor Beth Kaufman at University of Irvine, who's done a groundbreaking on this research. Maybe we need to get a better understanding of what role could that adolescent brain development be playing in this incredible, un 
unheralded in my career increase in young people committing these incredibly dangerous crimes through the use of carjacking. I, I'm with you, Jeff. I'm, I sometimes scratch my head and wonder how could this be across so many big cities like this? You're saying that in your experience, you've never seen anything like this. Not, th- not as it relates to carjacking, no. I mean, we've lived through and seen some horrific uses of dangerous violence and guns. But this carjacking thing in New Orleans, for example, Jeff, is three solid years. I don't think that's a COVID question. This was going on before COVID. It continued through COVID. And now we're in the second year after it. And it's accelerating in New Orleans. It's accelerating in other cities as we look at it. It is a very unique issue that I haven't seen quite like this in all the other violence I've seen as a chief. So are they are they doing it to resell these vehicles or sell the parts? I mean, why does someone do this kind of thing? You know, there's always been the historical perspective that cars are stolen to perpetrate for another crime. That's a piece of it. Cars are stolen to sell for parts. That's a piece of it. Um, the advancing technology in car manufacturing has made those two, at least in my opinion, not quite as a, uh, as, a, as uh, desirable as it was maybe in the 70s and 80s and 90s. The third thing is to just use it as a joyride. And I've heard some police chiefs of today talk about their intelligence is telling them many of these carjackings are just simply for the fun and drop the car off a few blocks later. I think that's existing as well. So we've always had steal a car to do another crime. We've always had steal cars to sell parts. And we've always had stealing cars for some part of joy riding. And I'm not sure how much that's changing, but it very well could be. Just the thrill of it, right, Jeff? Just the thrill of it. And it sounds so perverse to our minds as adults to think that kids would find it thrilling to put a gun on someone's face, take their car, ride around for a few blocks, and just dump the car. That That's happening, as are the other things. Mm, how does one... How does one protect oneself from that kind of crime? Is it is it about the kind of car that you're driving? If it's a flashy car, I mean, what? any idea in your experience? I think what it has to be is the recognition that you cannot lose your life to protect your car. Secondly, I'm not sure that the advice that some people are given to dress down and not look like you have any means as a way of reducing crime. I think that's a misguided effort because the criminal element is the one that we need to find a way to interdict, not the lifestyle of people who choose to live the way they live. Um, But you can't ever underestimate how volatile these things can become with a young kid with a gun in their hand, and you just don't know what they're thinking. If you can, give the car up. And here's the other thing, Jeff, you just mentioned and reminds me. In many cases here in New Orleans, and I'm sure around the country, these carjackers are not very well thought out and planned. And oftentimes they'll go a block later and find out there's a kid in the car. What another insult to injury if someone takes your car and your infant is in the back seat? And that happens. Fortunately, I've not seen too many times where they've not done anything except others say, Ooh, I got to get the heck out of this car. But I mean, imagine what a parent is going through. And that, that's my final point. On this question, the criminal justice system is built to defend a defendant's right to challenge any and all evidence against them. A victim has to rationalize that person just stuck a gun in my head. My baby was in the backseat in their car. Ronald Surpass, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Last week, I interviewed former Washington, D.C. local news anchor Bruce Johnson. We talked about his new memoir, Surviving Deep Waters. I, I think journalism is in trouble. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me, Jeff, is that we spend so much time on correcting misinformation. I think too much. I think, again, going back to the cell phone, most of this, in, this misinformation, I, I can correct myself, you know, using my cell phone. I mean, I got to do is Google stuff, you know, uh, Wikipedia eh, sometimes, but 
it's 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 ridiculous that uh, time that had been spent cultivating, digging up good stories uh, that I couldn't find on my own is now being spent on you know misinformation. We also talked about how he was a mentor to me when I was a young journalist trying to catch on in this business. Last weekend, Bruce Johnson died. According to his wife, he had a heart attack. He was just 71 years old. I was texting with him before my interview with him was to air, just to give him a heads up that it was going to air, and he sent me a thumbs up sign back. That was just days before his death, two days before his death. That was Bruce Johnson. That thumbs up. I knew him to be a positive man, always willing to help. And I wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for journalists like Bruce Johnson who were willing to take the time and offer advice. I'll never forget what he did for me. Bruce Johnson, 71 years old. That is This Week's America Changed Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast and also check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.